Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, May 26th, we are studying Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 21 through chapter 8, verse 3. The idolatrous abuse of the temple of the Lord will lead to utter death and destruction in the land of Judah. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. David Adams. Dr. Adams serves as Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Adams, welcome to Sharp Iron. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you with us this morning, Dr. Adams. As we get started with this last part of Jeremiah chapter 7, the first part of chapter 8, let's talk a little context. What should we know about Jeremiah the prophet, his ministry, and the book up to this point that will help us with the verses we have for today? Okay. Well, I think the main thing is to uh, to understand the way that uh, Jeremiah fits into the context of his own period. Uh, during Jeremiah's time, Jerusalem was devastated by probably four different uh, sieges and destructions. In most of the time, we talk about the uh, destruction in 587 or 586, depending on how where you want to put the date, but uh, we think of that as the point at which the exile began, and it was certainly the crucial point because that's when the temple was destroyed, but it wasn't the first time. There had been a whole series of incidents in which Jerusalem was laid siege to and sacked and partially destroyed and people taken into exile. In fact, the exile in 587 was one of the smaller exiles when it comes to actual numbers of people taken into captivity. Most of the people were taken at earlier times. Uh, Jeremiah was one of those who was not taken, even in 587. He remained behind. But the point is that there is a series of unfolding judgments upon the people and upon the nation for its disobedience of God's word. And these served as warnings to the people that uh, God was calling them to repentance. And uh, they didn't hear those warnings. Uh, God gave them also verbal warnings through his prophets. And of course, we're focusing primarily on Jeremiah in this case, uh, to interpret for them those historical events that were happening around them so that they would understand what was going on in terms of God's work among them. And so all of this comes together in the text that we're going to look at today because God uh, speaks to Jeremiah, sending him to warn the people of uh, the most catastrophic and disastrous of judgments that is impending on the horizon if they don't repent. And so that sets the stage 
for the text that we're going to look at this morning. With that introduction and the series of devastations that are there in Jerusalem, and this text being very graphic in the way that it describes that devastation, particularly as we get into those verses in chapter 8, I know Jeremiah is sometimes, it's difficult sometimes to situate various texts in a particular spot in his ministry. I mean, it's a long ministry, several kings that are there at the end. Are there any indicators in this text as to maybe a specific situation, one of the kings in particular, that this text falls? I don't think there's anything that makes it certain. There is, obviously, uh, a setting before 587, but how much before is unclear. And not all of the books of the Bible, even all the narrative books, are arranged chronologically, and certainly the prophets are not always arranged chronologically. So we might be inclined to think this was closer to the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry because it's closer to the beginning of his book. I don't know that we can actually make that judgment based on anything that's clear in the text. Uh, So it's clearly before 587. Uh, How much before is a little unclear, but in a sense it, it doesn't matter because when we talk about setting in the prophets. We need to remember that it's not the date that matters. It's the situation in the life of the people. It's the situation to which God is speaking through the prophets. And that really doesn't change throughout this whole period. So there's not enough specific historical information in this text to enable us to pin it down to a specific moment. But the general context and the overall thrust of the message are really quite clear here. Certainly. All right, let's go ahead and take a look at the the text. Dr. Adams, how far would you like to read? Do you want to read the whole thing or do you want to cut it off at a certain point and take it in sections? I think we should take it in sections, and I, frankly, I'd like to start off with just the very first verse, verse 20. All right, well, that's, that's what we'll do then. So Jeremiah seven twenty one, the very first verse says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. Now, what is this opening word from the Lord? What is Jeremiah to tell the people? Okay, to understand what's being said here. You have to know a little bit about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. You don't have to know a lot, but there are some basics that we should understand. Uh, There are two different kinds of offerings being referred to here. The ESV translates burnt offerings, and that's a very traditional translation. It's not actually a very accurate translation, but it's traditional and it's well-established, so we use it, and and we all know what we mean, or at least... uh, People who study the Old Testament know what it refers to. An olah in Hebrew is, the the word actually means to go up, and so the idea is this is an offering that goes up to God in its entirety. And that's why sometimes it's translated something like a whole burnt offering. The point of an olah is that it's entirely consumed. You know, it's, uh, you know, the offerings... Perhaps it wouldn't be uh, too impious of us to compare them to a big barbecue grill, the, the, the altars, that is, because the, the meat of the animal sacrifice is placed on the grill over the fire, and it's allowed to heat and burn and cook. And uh, for some offerings, the uh, 
the meat is separated into parts, and part of it is consumed on the altar, part of it is literally cooked, and then some of that goes to the priest, and some go back to the person who made the sacrifice, and often there's a celebratory meal that follows using that food that was sacrificed on the altar. But that's not the case with an olah, with a whole burnt offering, shall we say. In the case of an olah, the entire offering is consumed. None of it goes to the priest. None of it goes back to the worshiper. It goes entirely to God. So that's why it's sometimes called a whole burnt offering, because it's burnt in its entirety. It's entirely uh, it's cooked on the grill until it completely disintegrates. Uh, so, uh, so that's what it is in terms of of the distinction between an olah and a sacrifice, uh, a zavach that's referred to also in the verse. So, uh, the point is uh, the the zavach translated sacrifices by the ESV is one of is the category of sacrifices where part of it goes to the priest and part of it goes back to the worshiper. We don't need to go any more detail there. But more important for our purposes is that the olah sacrifices, the whole burnt offerings, if you will, uh, those are used for atonement. That is to say, those are the kind of sacrifices that are used for uh, sacrifices that signify the forgiveness of sins. So what God is saying through Jeremiah here is that they might as well take the meat that they were going to use for atoning sacrifices and add it to the meat for the other kinds of sacrifices and go ahead and eat it because God is not interested in it. That's the point here. God is not going to accept their whole burnt offerings. He is not going to receive them and pronounce forgiveness of sins as a result of them. So they're pointless, and therefore they might as well not bother. That's what God is saying through Jeremiah here. So when he says, God says, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices, he's saying, don't bother with the atoning sacrifices. Just take that meat and add it to the other stuff and go ahead and eat it because I don't care about it. So mm-hmm. that's, a, in effect, a rejection of any idea of the forgiveness of sins in this case. So that's a really, really harsh, final, negative judgment on the part of God uh, on their behalf. He's completely going to ignore their sacrifices and is not going to forgive their sins. Well, I mean, that's that's a very striking judgment from the Lord. It, it fits very well with what we looked at the end of yesterday's text, where the Lord even told Jeremiah, don't pray for them. And so you, yeah. you get this, you know, it's a you see how far. Judah has fallen based on the way that the Lord is saying, I'm not even going to now, I'm not going to pay attention to that sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And I think as the text continues, he gives the reason. So I'll read a little bit farther into the text and, and let you comment on that as well. So now we're in verse 22 of Jeremiah 7. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice. And I will be your God, and you shall be my people. 
and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. I'll pause there. That's through verse 26 of Jeremiah 7. Dr. Adams, in verses 22 and 23, the Lord says, For this is the, the reason why your burnt offerings aren't going to matter. And he brings up what he had done when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. He said, I didn't tell them anything about burnt offerings or sacrifices. Instead, my command was obey, listen, I'll be your God, you be my people. Now, I think we need to be careful because when I read the first five books of the Old Testament, God did have something to say about sacrifices. <laughs> yeah. So what what's his point here? What's what's he getting at? Yeah, there are two ways to take this that uh, help us to understand this. Because you're right. Yeah, one might hear this and say, but wait a minute. What was all that stuff in the book of Leviticus about then? Right. There, you did say a lot to them about burnt offerings and sacrifices. So this seems to be contradiction, but it's not really. And they're one of two ways that we can understand it. Often, uh, the prophets will engage in a kind of hyperbole or exaggeration. Uh, and the point here, if you take it that way, the point would be not to deny that God said anything at all about sacrifices, but that was not the main thing that God was talking to them about. So, uh, you know, this was a, you know, a secondary thing. And so, you know, God, God is in effect saying, uh, that wasn't the point, you know, uh, he's denied, he's overstating the case in order to make the point. So that's one way some commentators understand this, but I, I would actually take a slightly different approach here. Uh, I would, uh, and, and, and the approach I would take would be because I see the reference in verse 23, uh, obey my voice, I will be your God, you'll be my people, as an allusion to what God says to them in the book of Exodus, either in chapter 19 or a little later uh, in the book. But in any case, in the book of Exodus. So that would be before all the instructions about burnt offerings are made. So the point here, and this is the way I understand this, is, is a chronological point. The point that God is making is that when he established his relationship with Israel, when he called them to be his people, when he made his covenant with them, that relationship was not established on the basis of burnt offerings and sacrifices. That relationship was established on the fact that they would uh, receive God's Torah, his teaching, and walk in it. And the central part of that teaching, of course, is to worship Yahweh only, to, to worship him as their God and to reject all other gods. So I think the point that's being made here is uh, contextual and chronological. That is, initial, you know, the, the point is the covenant was not based on uh, burnt offerings and sacrifices. The covenant was based on the relationship that God established with them. And what Israel agreed to in the covenant was that they would receive God's teaching and walk in it. And 
as a result, uh, we get the covenant language here in verse 23, I will be your God and you will be my people. So that, to me, sets the context in which we need to hear what's said in verse 22. It's in the context of the covenant relationship, not in the broader context of the cult, which is established after the covenant is established. So the cultists, the the sacrifices and all that, they're not the basis of the relationship. The basis of the relationship is the relation is Israel's accepting Yahweh as their God and being willing to receive his teaching and to worship him as their God only. Uh, The rest of it, the cultic uh, prescriptions that come in the book of Leviticus are the are the form that the expression of that relationship is going to take as it unfolds over time. So the point here that that God is making through Jeremiah has to do with the basic relationship, the, the covenant relationship that he makes with them. He's not denying that he ever gave them any instructions. What he's saying is that those instructions were not the basis of the relationship that we have with one another. That's based on obeying my voice. I will be your God. You'll be my people. You'll walk in what I've commanded you. So that's the way I think we should understand this. And I think it's, we can see that rooted in the text itself. I think that makes a lot of sense, and it's very helpful to see that chronological progression, as you brought out there with the book of Exodus and the order in which God establishes his covenant and then later gives the the rites of sacrifice, which, again, are not fully rejected, much like in, in yesterday's text where the people are taking this false confidence in the temple. It's not that the temple was a bad thing, but the people had tried to take a hope in the temple apart from the promise of the Lord and the faith that promise gives, it sounds like something similar is happening with the sacrifices here, that they, they're they using them as just an outward right while forgetting the promise of the Lord that has established their relationship with him in the first place. It, it reminds me a, a little bit of the way that, that Paul argues in Romans and Galatians, I think both, when he talks about Abraham being the man of faith because circumcision came after the promise. Is there, I mean, with that sort of that same chronological argument that, that Paul says, Abraham's relationship with God is based on the promise. And then circumcision came later. It sounds like Jeremiah has got a similar thing going on here where the Lord is saying, your relationship with me is based on my word. And then the sacrifices came later and you're putting the, I don't know, this is maybe not a good putting the cart before the horse. (laughs) Well, I think maybe, the uh, easiest way to understand it is by contemporary uh, example or parallel. Let's say that you had somebody who came to church every Sunday, but they did not really believe in Jesus, hmm. and they didn't trust in God's word for sal- you know for their salvation, and they didn't uh, receive His teaching and, and walk in His way. So they're attendance in church on Sunday. Say they were the, let's let's make up a scenario, and let's say it was the husband of a faithful woman in your congregation. He came along to church with her every Sunday, but he had no real faith in, in God. And that was reflected, of course, also in the way he lived his life. So you would say to him, you know, 
God didn't say to you, come to church and you'll be saved. God said, believe in Christ and you'll be saved. So your coming to church doesn't make any difference in terms of your relationship with God apart from faith, which is the foundation and the whole reason that you would come to church in the first place. So this this is what we have here is kind of an Old Testament parallel. God is saying to them, you know, sacrifices don't matter apart from faith, apart from that relationship that we have with one another, where you receive me as your God and hear my teaching and, and walk in your way. So it is very much a rejection of what in you know, theological terms we call ex opera operato, that is to say, just by doing the work itself. That's what's being rejected here, the idea that that the sacrifices formally, just doing them, do something. Uh, they don't. Any more than the temple, as you said, by itself guaranteed them anything. It was what the temple represented in terms of their relationship with God that mattered, not the actual, just the the building itself. And the same thing is true of the sacrificial system here. As Jeremiah continues into verses 24 and following, Jeremiah then is given to recite a bit of history, and he reminds the people, look, your fathers, they didn't do this. They didn't obey. They didn't incline their ear. They were walking in the stubbornness of their heart. I think, you know, they went backward and not forward. This is a, a theme in, in Jeremiah, the people not returning to the Lord, walking away from him and, and going backward, you know, putting it in that Exodus context. It reminds me that they're, they think they're moving into some kind of freedom by not listening to the Lord, and yet they're really walking backward into slavery. And and Jeremiah says, you know, that's what your father's done. I've, the Lord, I've persistently sent you prophets, including this one. Here's Jeremiah for you, and you're still not listening. What? How does this section close out? Yeah, this reminds me very much of the parable of the vineyards in Matthew, right, where Jesus says, tells the story that uh, he had this, uh, you know, there was a vineyard owner who sent his you know, servants to collect the rent, and they killed them, and ultimately he was going to send the son, and they killed him as well. Uh, you know, in, th- in this case, he's, this is an Old Testament parallel in the sense that God has sent them his servants to proclaim his teaching and to call them to account, to pay the rent, as it were, in metaphorical terms, and they have rejected uh, him, those prophets who were God's messengers and servants. So he sent them day by day, but they did not listen. They didn't repent. Uh, they didn't turn away from their sins. They did worse than their fathers. And so now God says to them, starting in verse 27 to Jeremiah, you will speak all these words to them. That is to say, you're going to tell them all that I told you, but they're not going to listen to you either. And that must have been a hard message for Jeremiah personally, uh, you know, to know that you're going to invest your life and ministry in preaching and teaching to people who won't listen and don't care. Uh, I think that must have been a very difficult thing for him to hear on a personal level and a, uh, if you will, spiritually taxing message for a prophet who is sent to proclaim a message publicly that he knows will won't be received, that repentance won't happen, at least not on a broad scale, and uh, and the judgment is therefore impending, 
and inevitable. Yeah, I mean, we see that throughout the book of Jeremiah, the toll that this takes on him. You see his laments, his confessions, they're sometimes called, come up time and again as he struggles with this reality, lamenting for his own people, the destruction that's coming, lamenting their sin that he sees, knowing that they're not going to listen. And, and yet being strengthened by the word of the Lord, I'm reminded of, of his call back in chapter one, where the Lord from the outset told him, they're not going to listen to you, but I am going to strengthen you. And and you see, and we don't get it in this text, but it does come up in other places in Jeremiah, where, where you see Jeremiah struggling with that and the Lord returning him to that promise, calling him back to that promise to strengthen him for this task of preaching. And this is important for Christians and for pastors today. God does not call us to win arguments or to be successful in human terms. Our obligation is to be faithful in what we preach and teach and and say and believe and do. Uh, That's all we have to concern ourselves with. God will take care of the rest. And so there really shouldn't be a burden on me you know, to say, you know, I, I preached God's word, and I tried, I did the best I could, and I'm so in despair because, you know, people didn't listen, they didn't understand, they didn't get the message. Uh, but God has relieved us of that burden and taken that part of the burden on himself. Our only concern is that we serve God faithfully that we believe, teach, and confess according to his word and conduct ourselves uh, in a faithful way. And everything else is upon God and upon, of course, those who hear and either receive or reject his word. But uh, so in a sense, that could be Jeremiah's hope and ours as well. Yeah, certainly hope from the word of the Lord that does the work we preach faithfully as he has given to us. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Jeremiah 7 and 8 with Dr. David Adams. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Hi, I'm Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager at Lutheran Church Extension Fund. As Lutherans, we strive to grow in Christ in our daily lives. Take time this summer to join us for our summer webinar series titled Growing in Christ. You'll discover how to grow strong and healthy physically, spiritually, and mentally, and finally put it all together in how you can serve your neighbor also. Check out lcef.org webinars for more information and join us this summer. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, May 26th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 7, verses, verse 21 through chapter 8, verse 3 with the Reverend Dr. David Adams. He is Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Adams, prior to the break, we left off about verse 27 here in Jeremiah chapter 7. I'm going to read a little bit farther into the text again, starting there at verse 27. The Lord says, so you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord, their God, and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. 
Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. That was through verse 29 of chapter 7. Dr. Adams, we were talking prior to the break about this matter of Jeremiah being given to preach to people who won't listen, to people who won't answer. Isaiah's call is, is not all that different. Why does the Lord send his prophets to people that aren't going to listen? Well, uh, he has called Israel to be his people. They have received at least agreed to receive his teaching and be his people. God still cares about them and wants them to repent. So he's giving them every opportunity. He's going the extra mile, if you will. He's uh, he's not just saying, okay, this you got one chance to either get it right or get it wrong. Time after time, God's word comes to them and to us to call us back to himself. And just as uh, we need to repent daily and turn from our sins and hear the word of comfort that God has for us, so also he gives Israel that opportunity to repent over and over and over again. And so the fact that he continues to proclaim his word to them is really a sign of his love for them and his faithfulness to the covenant that he made, even though they are not faithful to the covenant or the relationship that they had or agreed to with him. And so that's why this is the nation that did not do what it was supposed to do, what it agreed to do, to obey the voice of the Lord and receive his. The ESV uh, translates and did not accept discipline uh, that's not a wrong translation by any means. The, the Hebrew word there, you know, I would probably translate it something more like correction. Discipline to the modern reader implies, you know, punishment like you know, physical, you know, discipline. You know, either go sit in a corner or, or, or whatever. You know, that implies some kind of a punishment, and that's not really the point here. The point here is that that they didn't accept the warnings that God gave. They didn't accept the attempts at correction or the call to repentance. So I think I would have translated this, they did not accept correction or warning, uh, and truth has perished from their lips, and it's cut off. And so then we get the call in verse 29 to go into mourning, uh, Jeremiah's, you know, figuratively called to go into mourning, uh, you know, uh, funeral rites, cutting off his hair and uh, singing a lamentation because God has rejected his people. And the, the generation of his wrath uh, means the generation that God is, uh, God's wrath is going to be poured out on. And then starting in verse 30, we get more details of the reason for that wrath. Before we leave that lament in or the mourning in verse 29 behind the, the cutting off of the hair. It, now, a, a couple of questions actually there is, is the Lord telling Jeremiah to literally cut off his hair like later? He'll tell him to go buy, you know, the linen loincloth. And there's other actions where Jeremiah literally does something as part of his ministry. Is the Lord telling Jeremiah to cut off his hair literally? And then more broadly, why is the cutting off of hair part of the rite of mourning? Yeah, well, let me uh, deal with the second part first. Um, you know, the the cutting off of hair is a common 
uh, warning rite throughout the ancient Near East. Uh, we often see it referred to in inscriptions in other nations around Israel. So this is a common cultural expression. It might be sort of the uh, modern equivalent to wearing black or something like that. It's an outward sign of mourning. And, you know, we we have these outward signs so that people don't have to, we don't have to tell people all the time. They can see us and understand the situation that we're in. So, you know, in times past, not currently, but at least not in our society here in America, but uh, in times past, you know, uh, for example, if a woman's husband died, she might not only wear black, but wear a veil over her face for several months, even, depending on the cultural context at her particular time. But this kind of public expression, and, and we see these, uh, you know, we kind of have our little modern parallels, like those road signs that people put up on the, you know, on the side of the road to commemorate those someone who's died or they're doing something in someone's memory. And on one hand, it's a, it does help psychologically, I think, uh, people to work through the process of grieving, to be able to express their grief in an external way and not have to hold it in, if you will. I'm not a psychologist, but that's something that I have observed uh, both in the modern world and I think it works in the ancient world as well. So this is simply... It doesn't have any hair. Doesn't have any special significance. It's just that this is a cultural experience, a, a cultural way of expressing that was commonly used and commonly understood. So, the question of whether God meant it literally or not, I don't know that we can answer. We're not told. I don't think that Jeremiah actually does this later on, but there's no reason to think that he didn't. Uh, this may well be literal, or it could be metaphorical. This could just be a way of figuratively saying, uh, of declaring that, in effect, Israel is dead as far as God is concerned. Right. He has rejected them and forsaken them. So it doesn't necessarily really matter whether we know whether Jeremiah took it literally or figuratively. It could be either one, and the message is clearly the same either way. I, I'm kind of inclined to think, you know, judging from Jeremiah and the other prophets, that he probably did do it literally, but the text doesn't tell us that, so... Uh, you know, we we probably shouldn't teach something that God's word doesn't teach. That's right. That's right. And I appreciate that. That you know, the the point here is that Israel, Judah, is dead, and and that's where the text goes. It gives us a very a brutal picture of that death as the rest of the text. I'm going to go ahead and read the rest for us, Doctor Adams, beginning now at Jeremiah seven verse thirty. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs. 
and they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, and which they have sought and worshipped. And they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. That's the rest of our text for today through Jeremiah 8, verse 3. A very brutal scene to picture in your mind, very brutal to, to even read that just that repetition in chapter eight, the bones, the bones, the bones over and over again. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about this scene, Dr. Adams. What, what are the detestable things that are going on in this, this high place of Topheth, the Valley of the son of Hinnom that is going to lead to this scene of death and destruction? The, uh, text mentions the burning of their sons and daughters in the fire. And this has always been a matter that has been uh, uh, much debated. You know, to what extent was a, it actually Canaanite practice to engage in child sacrifice, and then to what extent was that adopted in Israel. There's certainly some evidence that this is part of it, that it was adopted by some people in Israel. We do have uh, other places that there are hints that child sacrifice was practiced. It's often associated with the deity Molech, although, again, that's a little vague and uncertain. We don't have enough information either in the Bible or outside the Bible to establish that. But one thing that we can see from what we do have outside the Bible is that child sacrifice was not common among the Canaanites. So it was practiced, but it was seen even by the Canaanites as an extreme kind of practice. It was not a common place. And so the Israels were adopting it. They were, in a sense, you know, uh, we might say more Canaanite than the Canaanites were. You know, that they had gone to an extreme, even by Canaanite standards. This was an extreme. And, and so that's probably uh, a useful thing to understand here. Uh, whether the... God Molech was particularly being worshipped or not is unclear and not specified here. Uh, we get the location. The location, uh, Topheth is a you know something that's just mentioned a couple of times, and it's probably uh, we don't know whether it was actually the name or not. We don't even know what the name exactly, uh, where it exactly comes from. Uh, one suggestion is that this is a combination of the consonants of an Aramaic word uh, having to do with a cooking hearth uh, and uh, then the vowels of the word for shame. And, and they do this a lot in the Old Testament. To, they don't want to, uh, you know, honor somebody. So they, they modify the word slightly by using the vowels for shame. So we get this, uh, for example, in uh, the son of Saul, who is sometimes referred to by the, his probably his actual name Ishbaal, and other times by the name Ishbosheth, where they uh, use the word shame instead of the the word that they don't want to say. And so Topheth may be a similar kind of thing. Other people think that it's connected to the uh, with an Egyptian god uh, who is uh, 
connected with fire, the, the god Ta. And again, we, we can't be certain of that. And in a sense, it doesn't matter for this text. The place in the Valley of Hinnom is just at the south side of the old city of Jerusalem. You, you can envision the topography between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives is this valley. That's the Kidron Valley. And just at the south end of the old city of Jerusalem, the valley, the Kidron Valley joins another valley that wraps around the south and west side. And uh, the south part is the Valley of Hinnom. And in Hebrew, that's Gehenna. And that becomes uh, merged together in the New Testament to Gehenna, which is a word used uh, to talk about hell. So, you know, uh, Gehenna, uh, the Valley of Hinnom, uh, is uh, becomes a watchword for the, the the place of eschatological damnation, uh, and, and and that's kind of in the background, or maybe I should say in the future, from the perspective of Jeremiah. But it's in the background of the New Testament's talking about hell. So uh, this passage that we're looking at here today kind of stands behind that as a metaphorical way of of uh, you know of prefiguring uh, ultimate damnation. So this is, this is a tremendously uh, offensive, extreme practice that some of the Israelites have adopted, and it's going to bring the ultimate and uh, most violent judgment of God upon them. So this the picture that is painted here by Jeremiah when we hear Jesus you know talk about going into for example in, in the Lutheran study bible they reference Mark 9:43 where Jesus says if if your hand causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell the unquenchable fire when when Jesus uses that term Gehenna this is the the picture that they're going to have in their minds of what what that's like yeah, or at least it's it's the Old Testament background to that usage. So the the idea of hell as fire, for example, uh, that you know the way of that way of characterizing the suffering uh, that is hell is is metaphorical, and the metaphor is drawn from this idea that here in Gehenna, people were burned, children were burned, were, were sacrificed. And so uh, the the picture draws on the Old Testament metaphor of burning uh, here, and that burning is characterizes this place that becomes the uh, way of describing God's eschatological judgment. Hmm. So this this place is a place of of death in in totality. I mean every every way that you can think of death it seems that it is here in this valley so the the yeah. dead bodies are piling up uh, in verse 33 as food for any sort of bird or beast and nobody's going to frighten them away maybe because they're all dead there in the valley there's going to be silence of any sort of joyful sound that might come from you know anything particularly a wedding the land's going to be a waste and then as chapter 8 begins this repetition of the bones of all the the various people kings officials priests prophets and inhabitants oh, man the, the picture in chapter 8 is really a brutal one almost a you know the bones are going to be brought out of their tombs but not for 
not for resurrection to life, but just for more death. This is a really, a really horrific picture that Jeremiah's painting here. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I often think of this as probably the most graphic and horrific picture of judgment in the entire Old Testament and, and probably in the entire Bible, just by the, you know, the repetition, as you said, of, of the bones and of the imagery that it draws out, you know, that, that their bodies will be uh, exhumed and exposed for the birds, the bones will just lie on the ground. That is to say, they won't be given a you know a decent burial. There, this too is a sign of God's rejection of them. You know, they're not uh, the grave holds no possibility of comfort for them. There's only, as you said, more death, more destruction, more uh, rejection. So that even you know we might, we might think of it this way: sort of even the grave rejects them. They're spit out of the earth. The, the earth itself won't tolerate them because their sin has been so bad. So that their bones will just lie on the surface of the land. And, and by the way, uh, just a historical note here: we were talking about uh, this Valley of Hinnom a moment ago. We should say that. In ancient times, at the time of Jeremiah and afterward, uh, this was already a cemetery area in uh, you know, the outs on the southern outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, and there are there have been uh, uh, excavations, archaeological excavations of the tombs uh, in the Hinnom Valley uh, throughout the 20th century. And, uh, and one of our oldest inscriptions from old Testament times was actually found in one of the tombs there. So, um, you know, when the old Testament when Jeremiah characterizes this in terms of a graveyard, this is the reality. This is not figurative language. There is a graveyard there. And this graveyard is going to spit up the dead and reject them even as God rejects them. So, Pretty horrific language, as you said. Hmm. Uh, Jeremiah also specifies that these bones that have been brought out of the tombs, they're going to be spread before the sun, the moon, and all the hosts of heaven, so the, the stars, I would assume, which the people apparently are engaging in worship of those things as well. And and it seems that, at least as I read it, that there's a bit of a, a condemnation of that idolatry as if to say, look, your bones are going to be in front of your gods, O Judah, and they're not going to be able to do anything for you. They're just going to have to gaze in horror at the situation you put yourself in. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned a moment ago, the kind of metaphor of the earth spitting up these graves, the earth itself rejecting them. And uh, so they're going to lie on the surface there. The bones will and their gods, the gods whom they have worshipped, aren't going to be able to do anything about it. They're not going to be able to help them. They're not even going to be able to rebury them, you know, and give them a decent burial according to the rituals of their own culture. So uh, this is also a way then of highlighting the, you know, the meaningless of the gods that they worship. The, these gods are absolutely nothing. They can do nothing. They can't help you. Uh, in, in life, they can't help you. And in death, they can't help you. So, uh, and that's, uh, you know, that's kind of the point that's being made here. And yeah, the sun and the moon and the stars, you're right about the host of heaven representing the stars and the planets and sort of everything that is, from our perspective, up in the sky, as it were. Uh, these are all 
associated with deities. So, you know, the sun, uh, the uh, Semitic god Shamshu is the same as the, uh, you know, as the uh, common word for sun, Shamash in Hebrew, uh, or Shemesh in Hebrew, Shamash in, in Canaanite. Uh, the uh, moon god uh, Yarek uh, is, uh, of course, where we get the name of the city Jericho, uh, another common deity in Canaanite, you know, uh, the Canaanite pantheon. So these are all uh, these are all the physical manifestations of the deities in Canaanite belief. And the point is, as I said, they can't help you. They can't do anything. They're utterly, uh, utterly uh, empty and worthless. This just this past Sunday on Pentecost uh, in many churches in our in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod we heard from Ezekiel 37 and the valley of dry bones and now I know Ezekiel is a prophet in Babylon at the same time Jeremiah is a prophet or there is some overlap not not entirely but there's there's some is there this just having that reading just in my mind from this past Sunday is it possible that that this text from Jeremiah makes its way to Ezekiel and when Ezekiel has that vision of the the dry bones in chapter 37 that there's a that's part of the reason God gives him that vision. Yeah, I think it's possible. Uh, I don't know that we need to uh, necessarily suggest it to in order to get the point that there's a connection between the imagery here, and the connection is this: right, that the gods that the Canaanites worship can't do anything to help those bones, but the God of Israel can. He can revive them, make them alive again. So the contrast between the two is the really important thing here. And, and whether, Jer- whether Ezekiel knew of Jeremiah's prophecy, which is entirely possible, but again, it's nowhere specifically stated, whether he knew about it or whether he didn't, whether it was just the Holy Spirit working and inspiring the prophets to communicate using this imagery, the important thing for us is that we, like the people of Israel, see the difference between what the, what the false gods of this world can do and what the real God can do. The real God can take the dead and make them alive again. The false gods are helpless. Yeah, and and that that contrast is is just so striking, and and should you know for for us today show us the just the utter futility of idolatry and the utter powerlessness of these idols that we would set up for ourselves, whatever they may be. They, they may not be little statues. We're not sacrificing our children to them. We may not be worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, but whatever those idols are to see their utter futility here, that would leave us completely dead. But then to, to see that beautiful vision with Ezekiel in chapter 37 of his book, that, that the Lord, through his word, he brings dead bones back to life to raise them from the dead. That, I mean, what a, what a powerful picture to, to show us and call us away from our idolatry and into true faith in the, the one true God. Dr. Ash, we got about three minutes left here on the morning. Final thoughts on this text and, and help us from this text to see the hope that we have in Christ. Well, first, let me just point one more thing out here at the end. The very last verse in our reading for the day, that even those who survive and are carried into exile, their suffering is going to be so great that they might prefer death. So the gods that they have worshipped aren't going to be able to help them either. And if we look at a text like this, 
and we think about you know, how would I preach this text or or whatever, uh, you know, we might have to look at it and say, well, there, you know, there's not a lot of gospel here, right? Uh, yeah. There's not a good place where I could look at it and, and link onto something and say, uh, this is how I'm going to preach the gospel. But I think that you just hit upon the way that I would preach the gospel from this text, and that's using the imagery of the bones here and contrasting this with the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel. So I hope that next time that, you know, in a Pentecost to come in, the, in next year, Pastor Apple, when you preach on this text from Ezekiel, you'll link it to this one and highlight the fact that our God is a God who is able to bring the dead to life, who is able to give us a hope for the present and for the future that lasts beyond beyond the, the sufferings of this moment, whatever they may be, and give us hope for now and hope for eternity. And so I think that the vision, the contrast between the vision of the bones in Jeremiah and the bones in Ezekiel would be the way that I would find hope in this text or in a way that's connected to this text. And if I were preaching it, uh, and I, I think I, I, maybe I'll preach this next time I get a chance, uh, although I'm not sure. This is not actually one of our appointed readings, so I probably won't have a chance, will I? <laughs> no, I have to but, do it from that the text, Ezekiel side. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to pick up that Ezekiel text, use the background here of Jeremiah to show the hope that is ours in Christ, that our idolatry would leave us dead, dry, with no hope from those idols, and yet the one true God, by the work of his Spirit in the Word, bringing us Jesus Christ, that raises us from the death of our idolatry into life with him forever. The Reverend Dr. David Adams is Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 21 through chapter 8, verse 3. Dr. Adams, thanks for being our guest today. It's always an honor to be with you. Thank you for having me. God's peace be with you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah, comments on this series, please get in touch with us. Send an email to KFUO at KFUO.org. Use the KFUO app, the open mic feature there to send up to a 60-second message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.